worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Cardio Nerds, we have a real treat for you today. As you all know by now, the Cardio Nerds mission statement is to bring cardiology to everyone, everywhere, and anytime. To do this, we bring the best of the best on this show. Today, we are so privileged to bring one of these people, Dr. Rahul Langani, to join the Cardio Nerds family. Rahul earned his medical school training at the Medical University of South Carolina. He completed the Osler Medical Residency Training for Internal Medicine at the Johns Hopkins Hospital with us. He is currently a third-year cardiology fellow at Duke University with clinical and research interests in advanced heart failure. Raul is a close friend of ours and left a legacy of excellence on our residency program. When you are around people who give 100% to patient care 100% of the time, it really impacts the way everyone else practices and pursues perfection in medicine. That is Raul. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, guys, for having me, and thanks for that uh, warm introduction. When I heard that you guys were releasing this podcast, I was absolutely thrilled. Uh, I don't think um, both of you know how much of an impact you had on my learning, following you guys around in the in the ICUs and other rotations that we had in residency. So to be able to continue that from hundreds of miles away via podcast has been really refreshing, and, and congratulations on all your success with this so far. Oh, thank you so much, Rahul. That means so much to us. Oh my God, so nice. And everybody, we are so very excited to share news that Rahul became a dad just last month. There's nothing that gives life meaning quite like bringing life into the world. So Rahul, thank you for letting us borrow you away from your family for just these moments. And a very special congratulations to you, your wife, Lena, baby Arya, and the rest of your family. Oh, thanks so much, man. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> thanks, buddy. So... Raul, what is in store for us today? This should be an absolutely fantastic episode. Um, I have the privilege of talking today to Dr. John Piccini, who is one of our faculty in electrophysiology here at Duke, and I'll give him a, a proper introduction in a little bit. But we will be discussing atrial fibrillation management in heart failure patients. Um, Dr. Piccini is a tremendous educator, and I'm really excited that all of your listeners will get a chance to learn from him today. Friends, just a reminder, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is simply to enjoy learning more about cardiology directly from expert cardio nerds. Hello to our listeners. My name is Rahul Angani, and I'm a third-year cardiology fellow at Duke University Medical Center, and I'm planning on pursuing a career in advanced heart failure. I'm extremely excited today to discuss a topic which I think every physician taking care of heart failure patients should be aware of, the management of atrial fibrillation in this special population. I think of atrial fibrillation both as a cause of worsening heart failure in certain scenarios, but also as a marker of the severity of a cardiomyopathy or as a sign of decompensation in others. There is a dynamic pathophysiologic interplay between these conditions, and the management of them requires nuance and clinical expertise. Therefore, I can think of no better person suited to discuss this topic than our expert discussant today, Dr. Jonathan Piccini. Dr. Piccini is a graduate of the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. He completed his internship and residency in the Osler Medical Training Program at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. He then came to Duke University for his General Cardiology Fellowship. While here, he completed a fellowship in clinical research at the Duke Clinical Research Institute and earned a Master's of Health Science 
before completing his training in cardiac electrophysiology. Dr. Pacini currently serves as the Director of Cardiac Electrophysiology Section in Duke's Division of Cardiology and has spearheaded many important programs here at Duke, including the Lead Management Program and the Duke Center for Atrial Fibrillation. He has collaborated with our anesthesia colleagues to create a neurocardiology service which cares for patients with complex arrhythmias and heart failure. Dr. Pacini is also deeply involved in clinical research, serving as Director of the EP Clinical Trials Program. He also serves on the Clinical Working Group of the American Heart Association Get With the Guidelines Atrial Fibrillation Registry Program. He serves on the editorial board of Heart Rhythm, the European Heart Journal, and the Journal of Cardiac Electrophysiology, and has countless peer-reviewed publications. Most importantly, however, Dr. Pacini is an excellent clinician educator and extremely supportive mentor. He has helped numerous fellows and residents with their clinical training, research projects, and publications, and his efforts have been recognized many times with fellow nominated awards. Dr. Pacini, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Rahul, it's great to be here. Please call me John, <laughs> uh, and it's also great to talk to the fellow uh, Osler House officer. Awesome. <laughs> All right, Dr. Pacini, let's get started with our first question. I'm going to focus our earlier questions around the acute management of before we go on to discussing the chronic management of these patients. So first, one of the hardest clinical scenarios that I find to manage as, as a fellow in the ICU is managing the patient with decompensated heart failure with concomitant AFib with RVR. These patients have high adrenergic drive and need their heart rate to maintain cardiac output when in shock or perishock, but their heart rate is often too high to maintain efficient stroke volume and cardiac output. And oftentimes, I found that their AFib is refractory even to cardioversion when we attempt it. What is your strategy to manage these patients, and does it differ by the type of heart failure they have? For example, RV failure versus LV failure. I think you highlighted a bunch of really important points, and you mentioned cardioversion. And I think a lot of times when cardiovascular teams are admitting very critically ill patients with atrial fibrillation, we often forget that if the patient's in shock or is not perfusing or is hypotensive, that emergent cardioversion is the best treatment available to us. Now, if the patient gets cardioverted uh, and they immediately go back into atrial fibrillation, so-called early recurrence of atrial fibrillation or immediate recurrence of atrial fibrillation that occurs within seconds of being cardioverted, that's a big problem. Typically, the best treatment in those situations is going to be intravenous amiodarone and a very aggressive attempt to restore the physiology such that whatever trigger is provoking the atrial fibrillation, be it you know cardiogenic shock or in other cases in intensive care environments, critical illness such as sepsis, that those triggering features are corrected. There's often a lot of reticence over giving IV amiodarone in these situations. You know, clinicians really need to be careful with the rate of infusion because the solutions in which uh, amiodarone is made aqueous have some compounds like tween that can cause hypotension. So making sure it's not given too quickly is very important. But amiodarone is a very good medication for acute management of atrial fibrillation. And it's a very bad medication in many instances for chronic management. But a lot of times we forget that it's a very effective tool acutely and one that we should use. The other point you bring up is, does acute management of atrial fibrillation differ by the underlying etiology of heart failure? And for the most part, the answer to that is no. Now, anecdotally, people have observed that atrial fibrillation in the context of severe biventricular failure or atrial fibrillation in the context of heart failure complicated by severe RV dysfunction is harder to treat just as is atrial fibrillation and extreme restrictive cardiomyopathies, the management is generally the same. We do want to control the rate and then restore sinus rhythm to give the patient back their atrial transport function. 
With regard specifically to the use of amiodarone that you mentioned, I know sometimes house officers or, or clinicians shy away from this in the patient with new onset heart failure who hasn't been properly anticoagulated prior to presentation, given this risk of potential chemical cardioversion that can occur with use of amiodarone. How real do you think that risk is, and, and is it justified in certain scenarios to still use it? Yeah. So, you know, everything in medicine is is risk and benefits. And of course, if someone isn't properly anticoagulated, they are at an increased risk for thromboembolism. And we know that heart failure patients um, have an elevated risk of thromboembolism above those of their peers who have atrial fibrillation and no heart failure. So yes, there is some risk. But of course, if a patient is in cardiogenic shock and can't maintain their blood pressure, then cardioverting them or giving them amiodarone, which may cardiovert them downstream, is reasonable risk to assume for that patient. What I think is really interesting is that a lot of times the stroke risk is overemphasized in the inpatient setting, which isn't to say stroke risk isn't a big deal. It's a very, very big deal. But the problem is, is there have been lots of analyses that have shown that up to half of patients with AFib and heart failure in the outpatient setting aren't getting anticoagulation. So, you know, we have to do what we need to do to improve a patient's hemodynamics and stabilize them in the acute uh, critical illness setting. But it is interesting how a lot of times in the outpatient clinic, stroke prevention just falls off everyone's radar. <laughs> While it specifically doesn't pertain to heart failure patients, I do want to take a small detour here to discuss your approach to new onset AFib in critical illness in general. As you mentioned, oftentimes in the throes uh, of a critical illness, even outside of cardiogenic shock, whether it's sepsis or trauma, Patients may develop transient atrial fibrillation, and then we treat their underlying driver of the atrial fibrillation, and we see that this arrhythmia resolves. What is your approach after discharge to these patients, the outpatient management of anticoagulation in these patients? Yeah, well, let me take one step backward. The approach to nuanced AFib in a critically ill patient does kind of mirror the outpatient evaluation. So what do you want to do in the outpatient evaluation? Well, you want to make sure there's no easily reversible cause of the atrial fibrillation. You want to make sure the patient isn't thyrotoxic. We also usually obtain an echocardiogram to get an assessment of the left atrium in the entire heart. And so treating acute atrial fibrillation in someone who has a normal-sized atrium may be very different than someone who has an enlarged atrium mm -hmm. with concomitant severe mitral uh, stenosis that hasn't yet been discovered. So there are some differences, but I think the core principles are very similar to one another. And then, you know, heart failure is a risk factor for thromboembolism in patients with atrial fibrillation. So um, if the patient can be anticoagulated safely, acutely, then that um, certainly is something we need to do. And then with respect to your question about outpatient anticoagulation, you know, the heart failure guidelines used to say that all patients with heart failure, atrial fibrillation should be anticoagulated. And I think that's what the best evidence supports. And then while we're on the topic of anticoagulation, I wanted to also discuss your approach to anticoagulation for transient atrial fibrillation. So as you mentioned, while we've previously relied on the, the chads 2 vascor description of the patient level, patient characteristics that confer risk for thromboembolism in, in anticoagulation, I think there are some newer data showing that not only do these patient-level risk factors matter, but time in atrial fibrillation actually matters. And now that many of our patients have these wearable devices and Apple Watches, I think clinicians are going to be increasingly encountered with patients who say, oh, I had three seconds of what my watch said was atrial fibrillation yesterday. How do you approach that and how do you account for time in atrial fibrillation into, into your management decisions? Yeah. yeah, no, it's a critically important point. 
And everyone kind of has a sense in their gut that 20 minutes of atrial fibrillation in someone with a CHADS vast score of 1 is probably very different than 20 minutes of atrial fibrillation in someone with an ejection fraction of 35% ischemic cardiomyopathy and a CHADS vast score of 5. There have even now been some very nice descriptive reports showing that that it's an interaction between the amount of atrial fibrillation and the underlying risk. What we don't have great tools is how to translate that data on a minute-to-minute AFib, CHADS-VAS score type of basis. I don't think it's going to be too long, though, before we do have that figured out. There's some really important clinical trials looking at the dose of atrial fibrillation Hmm. And using that to guide anticoagulation decisions in patients with implanted cardiac devices. And Rahul, as you well know, lots of those patients have heart failure. <laughs> so there's going to be prospective clinical trial data. And then there's going to be very valuable observational data. So to give your audience a sneak peek of some things we've been working on, we've now linked uh, data from remote monitoring databases to Medicare. And so one of the analyses we're looking at right now, mm-hmm. in fact, we just reviewed the data this morning is understanding what risk of AFib burden translates into what likelihood of heart failure hospitalization or the development of new onset heart failure. And the answer is, is that there is very much a relationship. And so I think future studies describing the magnitude of that risk will be very valuable to clinicians. Fantastic. Look forward to hearing those results uh, in more detail. So Dr. Pacini, now I want to switch to more chronic management of atrial fibrillation and heart failure. I fondly remember learning as an intern on rounds uh, the dogma that rate and rhythm control were equivalent effectively for the management of atrial fibrillation, even in patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, as demonstrated by some of the older trials, um, AFCHF and subgroup analysis from the AFFIRM trial. But the more in fellowship that I've dived down into the data, the more I've learned that this relationship is more complicated, especially now in light with some of these data from ablation trials like Castle AF and Cabana. What is your interpretation of the data, and um, what are your overall thoughts on rate versus rhythm management in atrial fibrillation in patients with heart failure? Yeah, so um, you always learn those things during training, and then you get out in the practice and you realize things are a little bit different. And actually, I was a fellow, and I was looking at the results from AFCHF, which I think was a really well-done trial. And I went back and did some digging into the very early literature. And there's actually a paper from the Journal of Clinical Investigation authored by Joseph Greenfield, Dr. Joe Greenfield, who was the chair of medicine here for many years and a a legendary investigator. And if you go back to the original work from Dr. Greenfield's lab, it's very clearly described that lack of atrial transport function and tachycardia in patients with atrial fibrillation are physiologically maladaptive. So I don't think any heart failure expert would ever say that being in atrial fibrillation is beneficial. Now, the hypothesis that putting the patient back in sinus rhythm will improve outcomes was not proven correct by AFCHF. And of course, the question is, is well, Is that because we had lousy tools, or is it that sinus rhythm and an atrium that actually contracts and facilitates cardiac output is not beneficial? And I think most of us think that the tools we had were not great. So now enter catheter ablation, which again is not a perfect therapy. It has risks and limitations just like any other therapy. And now we have not one, not two, but several clinical trials that have compared medical therapy either with antiarrhythmic drugs or rate control to catheter ablation. And those trials 
are very consistent. Now, I think it's important to acknowledge that any one of those trials, there are specific limitations that need to be discussed. But it's very nice to see that when you line those clinical trials up, they speak the same message, which is there's a reduction in hospitalization for cardiovascular causes, and there appears to be some survival benefit. So I think that in certain patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction, there is evidence that restoring sinus rhythm with catheter ablation does lead to improved outcomes. So the key question is, is who exactly are those patients? Um, And I think the answer to that is, for now, it's patients that look like the patients enrolled in those trials. So patients who have tachymyopathy, patients who have atrial fibrillation accompanied by heart failure and reduced ejection fraction who continue to have symptoms despite medical therapy. I don't think anyone is suggesting that patients with severe pulmonary hypertension (laughs) or severe biventricular failure with an ejection fraction less than 5% on inotropes would benefit from an AFib ablation. But I do think if you step back and look at the aggregate evidence, there is fairly convincing evidence now that restoring sinus rhythm, again, in select patients with HEFREF really does lead to improved outcomes. And I think that's a very exciting development that AFib specialists and heart failure specialists should be celebrating together. (laughs) Absolutely. To dive in more on the practical approach to that, because I think that's great that you've highlighted that data. When you do encounter the patient in your clinic with AFib and heart failure who keeps having recurrent symptoms, whether that's from their atrial fibrillation or heart failure hospitalizations, what is your practical approach to the tools that you use to get them back in sinus rhythm? So is it cardioversion without drug and then cardioversion with drug? When does ablation come in the mix? So what is the order of operations that you sort of use in management? Yeah. You know, some people say, well, anyone with heart failure, if they have AFib, it's symptomatic. And I agree, but disagree with that. So I do think it's true. Again, AFib is not beneficial in heart failure, but surely there are some patients that we see the minute they go on AFib, they're admitted with decompensated heart failure. And there are others who, you know, their exercise performance really doesn't appear to be different when they're in AFib versus sinus rhythm. So before we even try and figure out what treatment We always want to look, and again, fortunately, we're blessed that they often have an implantable device. And so we can correlate when they're having AFib with when their heart failure is decompensating. So if it does look like they have symptoms and they feel better in in normal rhythm, then we pursue rhythm control. And what rhythm control intervention we choose is really dependent upon the natural history of their atrial fibrillation. So if they've never had AFib before and no one has started them on a beta-adrenergic blocking agent then probably just getting them on a beta blocker and cardioverting them and educating them that they may need an antiarrhythmic drug downstream is probably the best way to go. On the other hand, if they've had four hospitalizations for (laughs) AFib despite amiodarone and their left atrial volume is still compatible with a high degree of success with ablation, then that's a patient where I think ablation should definitively be discussed sooner rather than later. I'll give you another insight that we've been struggling with. So we thought there are scores that predict your response to catheter ablation. And so we hypothesized that implementing those ablation scores like Apple uh, and other scores might help heart failure and electrophysiologist clinicians identify patients who would benefit. And what we saw actually was that if you were interested in how likely they were to have recurrent atrial fibrillation, the scores worked okay. But if you just wanted to know who's 
functional status improved and who had better quality of life, the patients benefited regardless of what their AFib ablation hmm. risk score was. So again, a lot of the answers on who should get what treatment and how we guide patient selection may very well depend on what outcome we're trying to achieve so that improving someone's survival may be very different from helping them feel better. Got it. That makes sense. And does your approach to management of atrial fibrillation change um, when patients have heart failure with preserved ejection fraction versus those with reduced ejection fraction? And, and do any of these data that you mentioned translate into that field that we're, we're increasingly recognizing? Yeah. So I think we all need to be very humble when we talk about HEFPEF. I'm always leery of people who tell me that they understand HEFPEF <laughs> really well because the heart failure clinicians that I know the best, you know, tell us it's extremely heterogeneous and we don't understand it well. In a word, I don't treat those patients differently than I treat my half-ref patients, okay. but I think it's an ongoing area of investigation. I'll share two things that the audience may find interesting. First, the heart failure group here and at other institutions has looked at, get with the guidelines, heart failure. Okay. And it looks like in patients with half-pef, there may be a survival advantage with rhythm control. Again, mm -hmm. observational data. Here at Duke, in our AFib ablation database, we just wanted to know did the patients with HEFPEF get the same benefits as the patients with HEFREF? And we didn't see any significant difference in recurrence hmm. rates. We did not see any significant difference in improvement in NYHA classification or quality of life scores between the patients with reduced and preserved ejection fractions. And that's why, barring additional evidence, I generally approach the two sets of heart failure the same way. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting insights. I also wanted to get your thoughts on AFib management in another special heart failure population, those patients with cardiac resynchronization therapy, as we know many of our heart failure patients have. As we know, these patients tend to benefit with higher biventricular pacing percentages, and atrial fibrillation with its irregular RR intervals can preclude effective pacing. Um, so how do you approach AFib in these patients, and is it any different than, than your other heart failure patients? So Rahul, uh, I was at a meeting last week, and a cardiologist who I respect a great deal uh, and was, was one of my formative teachers, and I were talking about this very thing, and he said, you know, it makes no sense to me that CRT is only beneficial at 95 to 100% biventricular pacing, and below that, the patient derives no benefit. And, and the data don't show that, right? They show that there is a benefit, but the benefit, you can see it decrease in magnitude the mm -hmm. further you are from a perfect pacing percentage of 100%. Now, there are some investigators who advocate that everyone with atrial fibrillation who has a BIV should get an AV node ablation <laughs> to make sure that they're 100% BIV paced. I, I, I think that is somewhat unreasonable for a few reasons. A lot of those patients also have very frequent polymorphic PVCs. And so if you can do an AV node ablation, and if that patient still has a PVC burden of 30%, they're not going to get great resynchronization. Mm -hmm. So I take a holistic approach. So if I have a patient in my clinic, they get a BIV, their ejection fraction improves 10%. Now they can climb the stairs and exercise again, and they come to see me, and their biventricular pacing percentage is 93% and they feel great, or even 89% and they feel great, then we really don't change management. But if they had experienced a response and they come back and their BIV pacing percentage is down and they're having RVR and we can't fix that with medical therapy, then yes, we consider additional interventions and probably AFib ablation before hmm. AV node ablation. Because uh, I think for many of us, 
who do lead extraction and admit patients with infections who are device dependent and the patient has to sit in the hospital oh, for a whole yeah. month, we usually do everything we can to avoid ablating the AV node. That makes sense. Thank you. There's also rapid improvement um, in other device innovation in the management of patients with atrial fibrillation. So getting to some of that, can you briefly discuss your approach to left atrial appendage occlusion devices and when they should be used in patients with atrial fibrillation and specifically in those with AFib and heart failure? Yeah. I mean, there is an amazing evolution of devices and medical therapy, right? So one thing we haven't talked about is, you know, what will the SGL2 inhibitors and what does Cubitrol Valsartan do to the natural history of atrial arrhythmias in patients with heart failure? And, and those questions are being answered. And you're right, there's a ton of devices and left atrial appendage occlusion devices are just one of 20 devices we could talk about. But I think it's a great question. I think if you look at the aggregate evidence there's no question a direct acting oral anticoagulant <laughs> is the best treatment to prevent stroke for atrial fibrillation. We know that 10% of thromboembolic events in patients with atrial fibrillation come from locations other than the appendage, so a systematic therapy makes sense. But we also know that one in eight patients can't tolerate a long-term oral anticoagulant. And for those patients, I think left atrial appendage occlusion is a really, really valuable intervention. And for patients who have multiple bleeding events, while the appendage occlusion devices may not provide as good stroke protection mm -hmm. uh, as a direct-acting oral anticoagulant, they certainly provide a very good deal of protection. And so here at Duke, we believe that left atrial appendage closure therapy is a very valuable treatment option for patients who can't tolerate long-term oral anticoagulation, including patients with heart failure. Great. That makes sense. Dr. Pacini, thanks so much. This has been extremely useful information, both for the cardiologists and the non-cardiologists who have been listening. Before we finish, the cardio nerds like to do a special segment at the end of their uh, recordings. So I have one last question for you. And that is, what makes your heart flutter about caring for patients with atrial fibrillation? Well, I mean, for the budding cardiologists out there, there are going to be some experiences in your career that you remember almost as if they're a photograph. And when I was a house officer at Johns Hopkins and I ran my outpatient clinic, I just felt there was no better feeling than taking care of someone's atrial fibrillation. And they would come back in sinus rhythm and they would tell you, well, now I can walk with my granddaughter and I can exercise again. And just the ability to get someone back in sinus rhythm and get them feeling better again, that had a tremendous impact on me and my intern clinic. Uh, and so, you know, I would heartily implore anyone who's interested in arrhythmias uh, and interested in heart failure, um, you get to treat a lot of heart failure as an electrophysiologist. Right. And it's, it's very satisfying. Fantastic. Always back to the patient. And with that, everyone, we'll conclude our segment. Thank you so much, Dr. Pacini, for this excellent overview of the management of atrial fibrillation and heart failure. It's been a pleasure talking to you today and learning from you over the past years, and I'm glad our audience got to see some portion of that today. Well, thanks so much. It's a delight to, to be able to have this conversation with you today. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. So it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. And please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to CardioNerds at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. Beep.